AWO-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. So glad with me on the program today. The last Cam and Company of 2023. We're going to be talking about the year that was, as well as taking a look ahead at what uh, might be on tap in 2024. With the reload, Stephen Gutowski. He'll be with us here in just a second. Before we get to that conversation, however... Let's talk about this for just a second. Joe Biden's America, it is crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink, as you well know. And a digital dollar could be coming out of the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews, and they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you contact them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. And now let's turn our attention to today's conversation with Stephen Gatowski of The Reload, talking about some of the big stories of 2023, as well as the... Um well, the concerns, I, I, I don't want to be entirely negative. I do want to talk about some of the uh, uh, positives to come in 2024, but uh, obviously there are a lot of concerns for gun owners as well in the year ahead. Let's get right to it. Take a look and a listen. Stephen, good to see you, sir. Thanks so much for wrapping up the uh, 2023 and looking ahead to 2024 with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. Uh, well, listen, we always love having you on the show. I, I could not think of a better person to uh, kind of, you know, take a Look back at uh, this year and then look ahead at uh, what we can expect in 2024. And I don't want to spend a lot of time looking backwards. I, I do like to look ahead. But, you know, when you think about everything that we have gone through this year, um, to me, it's it's been a frustrating year. We've seen some successes, um, but the Supreme Court, you know, has, has not followed up ruin with uh, any substantial decisions. Right. We had oral arguments in Rahimi, case dealing with prohibited persons. But um for the most part, you know, the the anti-gun states that have reacted to Bruin by saying, all right, well, if we can't limit who can carry, we're going to limit where people can carry. Uh, we're going to, you know, impose all these restrictions on uh, how to get a uh, concealed carry license. All of those are intact, at least for now. And, and to me, that is incredibly frustrating as a gun owner who believes that the Bruin decision is not only fundamentally important, but that it is uh, fundamentally in contradiction with a lot of what we have seen from states like California, Hawaii, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and the like. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely can see if you're a gun rights activist or a gun rights advocate, and you're looking at how this year turned out in the courts, uh, especially compared to 2022, where you had that big landmark ruling in Bruin that has that brings with it a lot of implications about a lot of laws that 2023 was maybe a little bit disappointing because you got kind of more of a mixed bag. Uh, you had all these laws passed like you mentioned, and and you had a number of rulings against them, um, and especially against, uh, you know, what people are calling the vampire provision, the, the sort of ban on uh, that switches the default for whether you can carry on private property from you can carry unless there's a sign that says you can't to you can't carry unless there's a sign that says you can. Um, you know, that's that's been sort of universally rejected by even the, the most liberal courts. Um, but the rest of the provisions, the rest of these sensitive places, things you're still getting essentially a, 
uh, a big brawl in the lower courts over whether or not they're constitutional. And to this, as things stand today, many of them are in place because mainly because of, you know, stays on rulings that found them unconstitutional, or maybe uh, the government wins on appeal, like in the Second Circuit on, on many of the second, uh, the, the, sorry, the uh, sensitive places restrictions are more, I think, commonly known as gun-free zones. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, you know, so obviously the, the outcome of this first year post-Bruin is not the kind of like tidal wave of court rulings against gun control laws, uh, at least not ones that have stuck to this point. So, it, you know, it makes sense that people will be kind of frustrated by that uh, up to, you know, as we sit here today. Yeah. Uh, most recently, I guess, what the Ninth Circuit uh, was at 845 on Christmas Eve, <laughs> releasing their stay uh, against the uh, the gun free zones in California. Yeah. Um, Not so, a stay, yeah. but it, like uh, the the schedule to get to the stay so it's kind of implying that perhaps they'll yeah. issue a stay before the end of this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the clarification. But, uh, the, you know, and, and that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, of course, like the Ninth Circuit, which have historically been hostile to our right to keep and bear arms, right? That that doesn't seem to have changed. Um, you still have, we've got some great decisions from U.S. District judges in California, not just Judge Benitez, but uh, Judge Cormac Carney is another one. Um, but again, the Ninth Circuit seems to be going out of its way to ensure that those rulings do not take effect, right? And and the state is able to uh, continue to run roughshod over uh, uh, Second Amendment rights of gun owners. Do you, you know, again, some of this is just scheduling, right? As you talk about, it's frustrating for gun owners, but, you know, the court is operating on court time, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, that is, yeah. right? Um, do you think that 2024 uh, portends a, a more fruitful time for gun owners as some of these cases start to percolate and make their way through the court system and, and, and reach the point where, um, it's not an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court, but now it is, you know, in the course of regular business, requesting that the court uh, hear these cases and address these issues. Yeah, I, I think at the very least, 2024 is going to be a year where you see where the court is really at on this stuff. Um, now, uh, Bruin made that pretty straightforward. I think we all thought at the time, and I, I still think that's probably the case that I don't think the majority has moved very much from where it actually was in Bruin. I don't see any real evidence of that outside of just trying to read tea leaves or whatever. Um, uh, but we're the court took Rahimi. It's going to have a decision in Rahimi in 2024. It's probably going to do something with range, the uh, nonviolent felon case uh, where, where the plaintiff won at the lower courts. Right. Um, and it's probably going to do something with Daniels, which is the, you know, guns and weed conviction so, sort of these are all somewhat related cases over who can own guns or who can really who can be barred from owning guns uh, under the Second Amendment. You know, you've got Rahimi, who had the violent history and he's got the domestic violence restraining order. Then you've got range with the welfare fraud or like food stamp fraud where he lied about his income to get food stamps. And then you have the Daniels with the, the weed and guns conviction. Um, I think the court's going to deal with all three of those in some manner. I don't know exactly how, whether it's going to be a decision in Rahimi and then subsequently taking those other two cases and going through the full litigation on that, or if they're all going to be wrapped up at once, we'll have to see. But, uh, you know, to me, the, 
one of the things that 2023 showed us is the court, uh, you mentioned court time, and I understand why people will be frustrated that, that, you know, Bruin didn't immediately lead to a huge tidal wave of change. Um, but if you look at how the court acted between Heller and Bruin, they didn't do much of anything with guns outside of like Satana, which was stun guns and mm -hmm. was a very minor, uh, you know, case that didn't go through full litigation. Um, that, you know, after McDonald in 2010, they didn't do anything major until Bruin in 2022. And that's not, I think, what we're seeing now because they're, they already did a Second Amendment case. They had oral arguments. They're going to issue some ruling in that. During those oral arguments, they they talk about the next cases, the, the Range and Daniels case, um, even mentioned Range by name in those oral arguments. So they'll probably do something about that. That's Those are Second Amendment cases. Then they also took two gun-related cases in the bump stock ban and the NRA case. Now, they're not Second Amendment cases, but they are gun-related. Uh, it, it sort of tells me that perhaps there's more appetite there at the court to actually go through proper order, you know, regular order, not emergency. They made it pretty clear they don't want to do emergency mm -hmm. litigation on the Second Amendment, uh, which I'm sure is very disappointing to a lot of uh, gun rights advocates for understandable reasons. But that seems to be the read there. They're not willing to do Second Amendment stuff through emergency action, but they do seem much more willing to do it through regular order. And uh, that's what I would look for is more trying to answer some of these big questions that Bruin raised uh, through the normal order of taking regular cases. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. And there's, there's one other case that I'll mention because, uh, you know, I'm glad that you brought up range. I'm glad you brought up Daniels. Um, Cause I think that 2024 is going to be a year where the court gets into the prohibited persons issue. Right. And, mm -hmm. and not just with Rahimi, but uh, you know, really talks about again, our nonviolent felons. Uh, do they lose their right? Are they dangerous? Uh, and, and it does seem like the court is leaning towards that dangerousness standard. Right. Um, which I think would have big implications, not only for range, but for the Daniels case. But, you know, there are also the four cases that the court granted, vacated and remanded uh, right after Bruin. Right. And none of those cases have come back before the Supreme Court yet. But these are already cases that the court has expressed an interest in. Um, there's that case out of the Fourth Circuit dealing with Maryland's ban on so-called assault weapons. Right. Bianchi versus Brown. It has been almost 13 months since oral arguments were held in that case. Uh, we do not have a decision yet. If the Fourth Circuit decides that case rather than just kick it back down to the trial court, which I, I think would be highly unlikely given the length of time that has elapsed between oral arguments and, and the uh, decision, when the Fourth Circuit comes out with their opinion, um, if they you know uphold Maryland's ban, uh, if they decide that Maryland's ban is unconstitutional, that could be a case that the court actually addresses next year, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think those GVRs are still ones you want to pay close attention to, right? You got the assaultants ban. There's a there's a magazine ban from New Jersey. That was one of them. Uh, and these are cases that I think everybody wanted to see in the gun, the gun owning community. Those are the ones that everybody cares the most about. You know, Rahimi is not really something that uh, is going to get a lot of people uh, excited or interested in Second Amendment litigation. Uh, because most people are not impacted by that sort of thing. Not that it's not important, but what the gun rights community is much more focused on are these hardware bans. Uh, and that's where you've seen mostly delays. You've seen some lower, you've seen you know split decisions in the lower courts, whether the so weapons bans are constitutional or not constitutional. That's kind of gone even across ideological lines um, with some uh, Democrat appointed judges in, for instance, Colorado, 
striking down the Sullivan's bans while other ones are finding ways to uphold them under Bruin. And the court is probably going to have to address that at some point, but they don't, they didn't want to do it in the Illinois case, the, the, the Naperville case uh, on an emergency basis. So it seems more likely that the fourth circuit case is the one that, that perhaps they would want to do it on. And, and, you know, it is getting a bit long in the tooth here as far as when the fourth circuit's going to issue. So it's probably going to happen, you know, relatives. I don't think they can hold it all that much longer than what they've already done. So it probably will come in 2024. You'll get some decision there. And the big question, it, depending on which way it goes, the question will be whether the, it goes up to the Supreme Court at all. If, they, if Maryland loses, I would doubt that they'd appeal, right? Um, but if they win, you know, almost certainly the the plaintiffs in that case are going to appeal and the court is probably going to have to make a decision at, at of course, they you know they want to wait for they often like to wait for circuit splits. So it's not even a, it's not necessarily a guarantee that will go straight to the Supreme Court, uh, but it, there is a much higher likelihood that you would get that. I mean, I think case, since I think. they've already you know granted cert to Bianchi, uh, you know, vacating the lower court decision and remanding it back down. I, I mean, I, I, it would be, to me, it would be extraordinary for them to say, we're not going to take this case after all, uh, yeah. because they've already expressed an interest. And, I, you know, it's an interesting, it is going to be an interesting conundrum. If the Fourth Circuit says Maryland's ban is unconstitutional, um, what does uh, Attorney General Anthony Brown do, right? Does he go on bonk to the Fourth Circuit, hoping to get that overturned? Does he take the loss, uh, as you suggested, right? I mean, we've seen precedent for that. Uh, D.C., uh, when it lost its uh, concealed carry fight over May issue concealed carry, they did not appeal that to the Supreme Court. When Illinois, uh, when their utter ban on carry, uh, concealed or open, was uh, struck down by the Seventh Circuit, they just decided not to appeal that to the Supreme Court. They wrote a shall issue concealed carry law. Um, and so that is, I, I think it, it is a distinct possibility. Um, I'm not sure. Although... I will yeah. say that the gun rights, or sorry, the gun control advocates uh, and the lawmakers in these states seem to have become much more aggressive in this in this sense lately. Like they just don't care about the implications of having to go back up to the Supreme Court. It feels like, I mean, that's what a lot of these broom response laws. Yep. Uh, they're sort of you mentioned earlier. It's people have been disappointed that the court hasn't stepped in on any of those yet, and I think that's because they're kind of so brazen in the way that they push back on the court with this with these attempts where it's now uh, really it's, it's harder to carry in many of these States than it was before Bruin. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there seems to have been a shift in strategy there. You know, and I, I think uh, part of me wonders if the strategy now on the part of Democrats is, well, it doesn't really matter what the Supreme court says now, because when we get control of the court, um, we're going to pack it, right? We're going to undo Dobbs. We're going to uh, reinstate Roe versus Wade. Uh, we're going to undo Heller. We're going to undo McDonald. We're going to undo Bruin. So it doesn't matter what precedent is being said now. Um, I think that might explain the aggressive nature that it, it, they just don't really care what the Supreme Court does because they they plan on undoing it uh, given the opportunity. Um, so maybe that will you know have an impact. Uh, but you know beyond the court cases, this is also going to be a presidential election year. Uh, and Joe Biden, Stephen, is very clearly running on a gun control agenda, right? This, this is not, um, you know, the Democrats of 20 years ago who got, uh, no pun intended, gun shy after uh, Al Gore's loss, uh, you know, raising uh, gun control is a major issue. It's uh, Democrats across the board, as you mentioned, they're leaning in. They're being very aggressive um, on, on gun control. And that includes at the federal level. You've got the things like the Go Safe Act that have been introduced that would ban 
almost every semi-automatic centerfire rifle, um, unless, you know, again, they come with uh, fixed magazines, right? Then you could manufacture them. Um, but really a, a, a brand new definition of what a quote-unquote assault weapon is. Um, you've got Joe Biden, who is not only, you know, using executive actions to go after gun owners, but also go after the firearms industry. Uh, you're reporting on what's been going on with the Commerce Department uh, and the uh, limiting of uh, firearm exports. You know, I, I think we're going to continue to see those types of aggressive actions taken by um, federal level politicians in Congress and in the executive branch as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly seems that this is part of President Biden's reelection strategy is to go really hard at uh, gun control efforts, limits to or efforts to restrict firearms in whatever way he can uh, through executive actions. Um, you know, and he can't get anything through Congress, but he's um, still committed to, uh, you know, servicing that that uh, constituency of gun control advocates as as much as he possibly can. I mean, he created a whole office in in the White House for them, um, and and yeah, now he's he's taken a, a number of executive actions that are constitutionally questionable at best. They've been struck down in a number of cases. Um, you know, and, and so he hasn't backed off the issue at all. Uh, he's still his main uh, push for pol on the policy side, even though he can't, you know, get it through Congress, is an assault weapons ban, which is, uh, you know, the more aggressive uh, of the the major Democratic gun policies. Right, universal background checks is what Barack Obama had pursued, which is a you know doesn't involve a banning of sales of guns. Uh, he still he supported assault weapons ban, but he pursued the universal background checks, which tends to pull better as well. Uh, Biden doesn't seem to have that concern at all. He's pursuing first the assault weapons ban. So it does give you that uh, view of, of where he's going to be for this re-election campaign. He seems to think that that's a winning issue for him. He um, doesn't poll. He hasn't gotten good marks on gun, gun, you know, how he's handled guns. Uh, I mean, that's could just be effective. He hasn't, doesn't have really good marks on anything right now. But, uh, you know, at the very least, Americans aren't responding to what he's doing with guns any better than what he's doing anywhere else. So um, it's an interesting strategy. I, you know, that's that. But that does seem to be his approach to this reelection campaign, for sure. Yeah. One of the you know, one of the interesting aspects of this, um, you know, and I think you and I both agree that, uh, you know, any any given poll is not a, a perfect snapshot of where the American electorate is. But when you look at a number of the polls that have come out over the past year, I think you and I have both commented on this. Um, there have been a number of polls showing that the strongest or the, the, the weakest support uh, for new gun control laws is actually coming from the youngest cohort of voters, right? It's 18 to 29 year olds. We keep hearing, you know, the David Hoggs of the world and even the Joe Bidens of the world talk about the next generation. They're going to be the ones to uh, lead the way on gun control. That's not what the polls really show. Uh, the polls show that, you know, the younger you are, typically the less supportive you are of these gun control measures. It's 65 and older's who are the most supportive of gun control in most polls, um, which I think is interesting because, you know, that is one of the issues I think Biden is facing is how do you, how does he drum up support among the base to turn out? Right. I don't think there are going to be a lot of uh, democratic voters who are going to cross over and vote for Donald Trump if he's the nominee. But I think that there's a grave concern among both Republicans and Democrats about voter turnout. Uh, you know, yeah. how many of their base are going to stay home? And yeah, especially with how unpopular the matchup is. Right. right exactly. Candidates. Yeah. And, and so match last time around, but it seems like that's probably what's going to happen. It, it does. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, as we head into 24, I think that's probably the most likely scenario. And 
I mean, not that I'm in the habit of giving uh, campaign advice to people who want to take my rights away, but um, I'm not sure that I would be running quite so hard on gun control, given the um, apathy or antipathy that we see for this issue from a lot of younger voters. They are not the you know, anti-gun voting block that uh, the Democrats and frankly, a lot of media outlets uh, portray them to be. Yeah. And I would even expand that further, right, to, uh, you know, minority voters as well. Mm -hmm. We've seen a shift. Um, You know, NBC just had a pretty major poll. We did a whole podcast episode on it with the the actual pollster who conducted it. But, uh, you know, that, that at the same time that Joe Biden is pushing harder into this issue, you're seeing less support for assault weapons bans. Um, than you have traditionally uh, in recent years. And then you're also seeing more voters who are now gun owners. NBC just had a poll that said 52% of voters say they have a gun in their home. And that's the first time they've ever found that. Uh, now, you know, the polls only been going since the 90s, but it's still a pretty remarkable thing you've seen. And it, and it captures that huge influx of new gun owners that we've all been talking about for the last several years. Right. Uh, and that demographic shift that we've all been talking about as well, uh, because the biggest increase of any single demographic in that poll for gun ownership was uh, black Americans. So, um, you know, and, and uh, while there are some really interesting results as far as how partisanship affects your view on guns, perhaps even more than actual gun ownership does, there is, it also did identify a correlation between how you view gun policy and whether or not you own guns, where people who own guns are less likely to want new gun restrictions. Um, and, and so that's the other aspect of 2024 on a macro scale that, that I think is interesting from, from a, you know, a gun perspective is how is this going to affect that election? You know, Biden is is digging in on these points at the same time that you're seeing movement away from them, uh, especially in some traditionally Democratic uh, voter demographics. And so how does that all shake out, especially with like whether you know, and how much of a priority are guns in this particular election will be another big uh, question as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we'll get an early test of this um, at the state level in, uh, well, in just a couple of weeks here, because uh, New Mexico, they've got a 30 day session. It kicks off in early January. Uh, Governor Michelle Luan Grisham, you know, who tried to unilaterally suspend the right to carry in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. Uh, now she's pushing a state level version of the Go Safe Act, right? And this is like her biggest legislative priority is let's go ahead and ban semi autos. This isn't going to stretch out for five or six months. Um, she's going to have a month to get this done. If she doesn't, I guess you could always call them back for a special session. But that would that would still be a defeat for for Governor Grisham if she can't get this done in that 30 day session. So, you know, we talk about um, how the influx of gun ownership among Democrats might change things. You know, lawmakers in New Mexico were reluctant to pass a gun ban last year. I don't know that anything has changed uh, this year other than they have a different bill uh, to uh, to get behind if they want to. Um, but I think that'll be actually a really interesting thing to see play out uh, in the next month or so. Can Michelle Luan Grisham get a gun ban bill to her desk? Uh, because if so, that that to me would indicate that uh, Democrats are going full speed ahead. Uh, and not just, you know, the governors, but the the state lawmakers, the uh, the Congress critters uh, who might have to face, uh, you know, a, a more divided constituency. Right. And so I think that's going to be that's really one of the first things that I'm looking for in 2024 uh, to see, you know, not only how the electorate feels about these issues, but 
how uh, state lawmakers and and even uh, you know members of Congress um, how they're going to be uh, voting on and running on these issues in 2024. Yeah, and I think it'll be a really good test for that rebranding effort too. I mean, you know, assault weapons bans, uh, somewhat to my surprise, to be honest, because I, I thought they were just done. Forget, you know, it had been like 30 years between uh, the last one that was passed and Delaware's uh, assault weapons ban, and then Illinois passed one, and and the House passed one, and that was all a little bit of a surprise to me. Um, so there's been a bit of a resurgence uh, uh, in the last couple of years on this issue. And now, I guess this rebranding effort that you mentioned and the bill that they're pursuing uh, maybe is an attempt to try and win over people who aren't going to vote for your traditional solvents ban. And so just sort of do, but maybe they'll vote for it in it with a new name attached to it or a new mechanism for banning them. Um, and, you know, uh, that hasn't seemed to have picked up any momentum in Congress, because if you recall, they introduced that bill and then they voted on it. So, well, they didn't vote on it, but they Schumer put one on the floor yep. for a unanimous consent vote, sort of a political stunt. But he didn't put the new version on. He just put the regular Feinstein assault open span version up. So that that effort didn't seem to go anywhere um, at the federal level. But it. You know, if it catches on in in New Mexico, maybe that does provide some validity to this uh, rebranding attempt that will, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, politics is like the NFL and that you know, things that are successful get copycatted. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, if it does work in New Mexico, maybe it starts popping up elsewhere, too, and then maybe you get a big push in Congress as well. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, I, you know, again, I think uh, I, I'm not concerned about gun control legislation passing in Congress this year. I'm a little bit more concerned about what politicians are going to try to run on. Not this um, year. Yeah. But uh, not this year. Right. But again, I mean, depending on the outcome of this election, um, you know, that could be very, very different in 2025. Um, yeah. This year, I, you know, I, I, I think we're going to see most of the action at the state level, both good and bad. Right. So you've got. Um, you know, the, uh, the the attempt to ban guns in New Mexico, um, you've got uh, the attempt to enshrine constitutional carry in Louisiana, which I think is going to get across the finish line this time around. Um, I know that there are going to be lawmakers pushing this in New, uh, North Carolina, where you've got technically, I think it's still a Republican supermajority, but you've got a Democratic governor. South Carolina, where you've got a Republican trifecta, but you've got a state Senate that's been very reluctant in the past to, uh, to even uh, consider constitutional carry. Um, do you think we've, have we sort of, we clearly haven't reached the limit yet because I just talked about at least one state I think is, is going to pass constitutional carry, but have we gotten to the point where it's getting more difficult to find those states where constitutional carry can pass? It almost seems like the pro-gun states have gone so far that there's not much more they can do. Meanwhile, the anti-gun states still have a lot that they can do to go after our right to keep him bare arms. Um, and so I, I am a little yeah. concerned that there's going to be in 2024, we're going to see a little bit of a lopsided nature where there might be more gun control bills passing than pro-gun pieces of legislation, simply because the pro-gun states are already really pro-gun uh, and the anti-gun states still have more room to maneuver. I think that's a pretty good read on things. And honestly, uh, while that'll be a negative for, for gun rights advocates in 2024, it's more of a sign of, how much uh, better they've been at uh, passing their policy preferences in, at least in the States where they have a lot of pull because the, you know, the issue is very polarized, you know, it's it's very, uh, uh, if you're a blue state, you're not going to pass constitutional Terry. If you're a red state, you're not going to pass 
you know, and a Sullivan's been obviously. So, uh, but you know, the gun rights movement has been a lot more efficient at getting red states to adopt all of their policy preferences than the gun control movement has been at doing that in blue states. Uh, and then of course you have a uh, purple states where, um, where I still think the balance probably goes more towards gun rights advocates. I look at some place like Pennsylvania where, uh, you know, that's a purple state. It has two democratic senators and a democratic governor, but it doesn't have most of the gun control policies that the gun control movement wants. Um, you know, it, it still has permitting for gun carry, but it's a, it's a pretty, um, low, low bar in terms of, uh, you know, you don't, it's really, it's like $20 to get your permit. You don't need even training in Pennsylvania. Um, so, uh, it's not constitutional carry, but it's not, it's among the least restrictive shall issue states and has been for a long time. Um, even Maine, where it's a blue state with, with blue, uh, governors and, and legislatures, and you still don't have the sorts of bans that most um, gun control advocates want. So you don't even have a universal background check law there because it failed at the ballot box. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's a. It, I think that trend that you're identifying is probably real. Um, I, you do, I do wonder how much they're going to put because you, you, yes, you have what's going on in New Mexico, but you also have Colorado, right, where. That's a blue state that's becoming bluer all the time. And they still, the governor there would not push an assault and span, probably because he has higher aspira aspirations for higher office, uh, Paulus. But, but you know, that you still have some of that out there in these blue, even, you know, blue states that are turning more blues, you still mm -hmm. have some resistance to some of these policies. And you don't see that as much in red states. Um, you did mention a couple where it's there's a little bit of that uh residual resistance in like south carolina or something but but it's i think it's more common in the bluer states to to see resistance to gun restrictions than it is in red states to uh you know loosening gun laws yeah no i think that you're right about that um i, I think that south carolina is more the exception there rather than the rule I, you, can, you can maybe say the same thing about colorado and uh, jared polis maybe. as well but Again, I think I think we'll see another issue that I think is likely to emerge. Um, well, I think it's almost definitely going to emerge in 2024. This is something that you've written about at the Relo. We're already seeing this in Hawaii, right, where uh, for most of December, it's been impossible for people to purchase a new firearm in Honolulu because they can't get certified. We're about to see the same. I think a, a similar phenomenon happened in California, right? January 1st, SB2 goes into effect. Um, in order to offer concealed carry training, you have to be certified by Cal DOJ. It is impossible for people to even apply to be a certified instructor through Cal DOJ until January the 1st. So we're going to be looking at a period of time in which it is very difficult, if not impossible, for a lot of would-be carry applicants to get the training that's mandated by the state um, this is another, I think, another issue here. And how how difficult is it to address these sorts of delays in court, Stephen? These aren't, again, these aren't outright prohibitions. This is just the state saying, oh, we need more time to come up with their own rules. How do yeah. how do we fight this in court? It's much harder. Uh, you know, I had a member's piece on this today about the Hawaii situation, which is even more severe than, than California. It's sort of akin to what happened in, I believe it was Oregon, right? They had a when they did their ballot initiative and it was impossible really to implement in the time mm -hmm. frame that they were given. So uh, it would have led to basically a shutoff of, of gun sales, but there was a lot more warning, I think about that issue. Um, and so people were able to get to court and, and get that 
uh, uh, handled before it, it became an issue, whereas Hawaii kind of popped up very quickly as as an issue, even though people saw this coming, some people saw it coming in Hawaii. Um, and, and it's more severe because it also affects gun sales. So you can't even buy a gun in Honolulu right now because they don't have a way to you there's no way for somebody who wants to buy a gun to get the training they require because Hawaii try they require a permit to purchase for all guns uh, which is pretty unique compared to the rest of the country even places like California and New Jersey but um <clears throat> yeah I, the problem is it's not necessarily an intentional ban it's more of a negligence it's a, it's the result of negligence or or laziness or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, I'm sure it's not a high priority for a lot of these officials who don't like guns anyway, to get this system in place by the time that they needed to, to prevent these sorts of delays from happening. And so it can be very difficult to go into court and fight something like that, where the solution that you're looking for is for them to just finish the process. <laughs> right. So once that happens, and you see this a lot in like as applied challenges too. Like sometimes if somebody's going for usually gun carry, not gun sales, the courts have been a little bit more uh, up to pace on making sure that all gun sales aren't blocked. But uh, it can, you know, the, the May, especially back in the May issue days, it was a lot harder to get court action on May issue concealed carry permits. And sometimes when you would sue, well, the person, the plaintiff's permit would go through at that point. Uh, and then they have no case left because right. they got the thing they were suing over. And so that's the problem with filing suit in a situation like Hawaii, where you spend the money to file the suit and it takes time. Uh, you know, courts do not usually act instantaneously as much as we might want them to, um, or maybe they should. But, uh, you know, if, if this sales prohibition, the effective ban, like because of this catch 22 situation they created, um, if that gets resolved in a couple of weeks, it's you're probably not even going to be through the beginning stages of your court uh, proceedings and the case becomes moot and you're out of all the money you spent to file it. Um, and in a place like Hawaii, where there aren't a lot of people for one and then gun rights advocates for two, um, it's hard to get something going on that basis. And even in even in California or something where you uh it's the same situation where it's like if unless they're intentionally trying to stop you from doing it and it's like part of the law and they're going to fight you on it it's very hard to actually get a court case uh to go through successfully against that because they can just get their act together while you sue them now maybe that's maybe it takes you suing them to do that and so it might still be worth it and somebody might still do it yeah um, but but you know that th that's one of the practical limitations not a legal limitation Legally, yeah, it seems like a pretty straightforward case with what's going on in Hawaii, but practically it's difficult to get uh, court action because, um, you know, if they just fix the problem, the, it becomes a moot issue. You can, there's tricks you can do, you can do, ask for nominal damages, right. even that stuff is uh, is hard to litigate over time if the if the practical issue has has gone away years before the court case finishes um you saw this in in new york right the before bruin there was another yeah new york state uh rifle and pistol association case that got all the way to the supreme court with 
with New yeah. York City defending its law all the way there until the court accepted the case. And then New York City was like, mm, never mind. Right. And it just changed the law. Yeah. No, we've happened. seen this. We've seen this with under 21s who, you know, age out, um, you know, yep. 18 year old sues for the right to purchase a handgun. But by the time their case gets decided, they're 22 and it's, you know, it's moot. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these are issues. And unfortunately, these are going to be some of the issues that uh, gun owners are having to deal with in 2024. You and I will be covering in 2024. Uh, and Stephen, listen, I, I we're almost out of time here, but I really appreciate uh, you uh, joining us not only today, but over the course of the year. And I'm looking forward to many, many more conversations in the months ahead, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Love what you do. Always read the uh, bearing arms every day. So uh, thank you for having me on. My thanks to Stephen for joining us on the program. Looking forward to uh, touching base with him again in the new year. Right now, well, before we turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report, let's talk about this for just one second. Biden's America and how it is crushing us. Companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink, as you well know. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co., so you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews, and they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. Right now, they're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. And now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We will start there with a case out of Indiana, Vigo County, where a man who was on probation for a domestic violence incident ends up getting arrested, charged with shooting three people at an apartment complex, and takes a plea deal that results in house arrest and probation. Yeah, I, I, I am I'm gobsmacked by this. I got to tell you, um, John L. Bell uh, took this uh, plea deal in the Vigo County Superior Court earlier this month. He'd been sentenced in September of 2021 on a charge of domestic battery and criminal confinement. He was sentenced to five years of house arrest uh, for that crime. Then in September of 2022, he was accused of shooting three of his neighbors. He fled the scene, was arrested in Chicago by U.S. Marshals. And again, was allowed to plead guilty to a singular charge of aggravated battery, as well as violating the rules of his previous sentence. Now, remember, he was originally sentenced to five years of house arrest on that domestic battery charge, right? So the judge in this case revoked the balance of that five-year sentence of house arrest, and he ordered Bell to serve the uh, remaining 815 days through house arrest. I, 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 again, I'm gobsmacked about this. So basically, you violated terms of your probation and nothing happened. The judge says, well, you got to stay on house arrest then, sir. As for shooting three of his neighbors, uh, Bell was sentenced to the Indiana Department of Correction for a term of imprisonment of 13 years and 248 days, of which 12 years were suspended. So then it's a year and 248 days. But the judge said, you know what? I'm going to give you credit for the time you've already served. You're free to go, sir. Yeah. The time that he spent in jail awaiting trial on those charges of aggravated battery for shooting his neighbors counts. And that's all the time that he's going to have to serve. Amazingly, he is out now. The remaining 12 years of formal probation 
can be served upon the completion of his sentence. That according to the judge and the uh, sentence, again, has been uh, served according to the uh, judge. So now Mr. Bell is out on probation. Again, theoretically, if he gets in trouble, he could be returned to prison. But that didn't happen the last time he violated the term of his probation. So why on earth would Mr. Bell worry about that being a consequence of his actions going forward? Today's uh, armed citizen story from Florida where a 76-year-old man shot an alleged burglar who attacked his wife. This happened early Wednesday morning in Pinellas County, Florida. Police were originally called out to the scene of a guy who was standing in the middle of the road yelling. Uh, As they were on the way, they got another call about a burglary in progress. And when they uh, showed up at the address, um, that's when they found this uh, 51-year-old man, Robert Jackson, with a gunshot wound. According to authorities, Jackson had uh, grabbed a rock, broken a window of a home, and gained entry, where he encountered a 74-year-old woman, started fighting with her physically. She yelled out for her husband, who grabbed his gun and shot the uh, intruder in the shoulder. That's when uh, Jackson allegedly fled. Tried to break into another residence nearby, according to police, but was unsuccessful at doing so. And he was standing in the middle of the road with that gunshot wound when uh, deputies arrived on scene. They arrested him, took him to a local hospital where he was treated for non-life-threatening injuries, and then booked him into the Pinellas County Jail. The uh, 76-year-old homeowner, uh, not expected to face any charges because, of course, he was acting in defense of himself and his wife. Finally, today, in the right place, at the right time, we'll unable to do the right thing. A uh, family in uh, Washington State who came to the aid of a driver who had gotten in several accidents driving the wrong way down the interstate. This was on uh, Christmas night. According to authorities, the driver uh, may have been impaired at the time. 85-year-old man who apparently got into a couple of car accidents before smashing his car to the point that uh, flames started engulfing the uh, engine compartment. Uh, Nathan Webb was on his way home from celebrating Christmas with his parents. He and his wife were uh, driving down the interstate. They saw the car on fire, and Nathan stopped. He ran over, tried to open the door. There were several other Good Samaritans who had seen what was going on, and they stopped as well. But despite four or five people trying to pull open the driver's side door, they couldn't get it open. It was just slammed shut. Uh, They couldn't access the compartment from the passenger's door either. Meanwhile, flames are starting to lick up underneath the uh, the hood of the car. So Nathan called his dad, who lived nearby, and said, hey, you need to bring the fire extinguisher. Amazingly, Nathan's dad, Matthew, showed up before the first responders did, and he and Nathan were able to at least uh, keep the flames confined uh, and prevent them from spreading any further until first responders arrived and were able to extricate the man from the vehicle. Uh, Nathan Webb, told KIRO Channel 7, he says, you know, you don't think about it in the moment. He said, I, I, I'm just getting a little emotional right now, but it helps that there was a good outcome out of it. He said, if I was in that situation, I hope that other people would help me. We're all human. Everyone can love on some people some more. Anytime people can lend a helping hand, they should. So in the right place, at the right time, we'll be able to do the right thing. Nathan Webb and all the other good Samaritans there in Washington State, we thank you for your very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I'm looking forward to being back with you in the new year. But I also want to let you know that um, we will be updating BearingArms.com throughout the holiday weekend. And we do have a sale going on right now through the new year uh, for our VIP and VIP Gold members. 60% off your VIP or VIP Gold membership if you use the promo code Merry Christmas. All one word, all caps, 
Just go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. Use that promo code Merry Christmas. And again, 60% off of your VIP or VIP gold membership. Not only will you get exclusive content from Barry and Arms, if you become a VIP gold member, you're going to get that exclusive content from every one of the town hall media websites. You're going to get uh, exclusive opportunities to hang out with us in our VIP gold live chats, as well as other special events. And you'll get the warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you're supporting the independent pro segment of journalism that we do here at Barry and Arms. So again, use that promo code Merry Christmas at barryandarms.com slash subscribe. It's our way of saying thank you for showing your support for all that we do here. That support is vitally necessary as we continue to push back against the anti-gun agenda of the Biden administration and uh, too many, too many members of the mainstream media. So thank you again for all your support. I hope you have a very happy new year. Looking forward to seeing you again next Tuesday. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.